Good afternoon, and welcome to Optimizing IT to Reduce Physician Burnout, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by DSS. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to some audience participation. You can send in your questions and comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. We're also going to have a little poll that we'll do later in the event, and we'll have our panelists look at the results. Just a nice way to view the screen today is you click on the top center, get it in side-by-side mode, then you can slide the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you like, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about, I would say, 40 minutes or so with our main panel discussion featuring Dr. Dan Nigren, SVP of IS and CIO at Boston Children's Hospital, Dr. Brett Oliver, CMIO at Baptist Health System of Kentucky and Indiana, Chuck Podesta, Interim CIO at UConn Health, and Christopher Connie, Chief of Strategy with DSS. So let's jump right in. We've got a nice panel today, and we're going to have a nice discussion. Let's get an overview of your organization and role. Dan, let's start with you. Thanks, Anthony. Uh, thanks, everyone, uh, for, for inviting me, and um, I'm looking forward to a great uh, session today. So Boston Children's is a 415-bed uh, academic um, teaching hospital in uh, Boston, obviously. Uh, we're the primary pediatric uh, teaching facility for Harvard Medical School. Um, I've been a CIO at Boston Children's for a long time, uh, 20 years now, and actually 25 years at the organization overall. Uh, I also wear a clinical hat. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist there. All that said, uh, I'm uh, about to leave, actually. I recently announced uh, that I've accepted a new role uh, up at Maine Health, uh, Northern New England's uh, largest healthcare system, uh, servicing obviously Maine uh, as well as New Hampshire, uh, roughly 12 facilities up there. So looking forward to that uh, as we cross into the new year. Very good, Brett. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Brett Oliver, uh, family physician by clinical background, still see patients one day a week. And for the last seven or eight years, I've been in IT, been the CMIO for Baptist Health uh, for the last four years. We are a nine hospital um, system, about 20, depending on COVID surge needs, uh, up to 23, 2400 beds uh, across our system, um, medical group of about 1300. Uh, and we, um, I got involved in IT, asked to be the medical director for our EHR rollout, not having a clue what I got into. And then the guy that brought me into it retired and I took his job. So. Um, Glad to be here and, and look forward to the conversation. Very good, Chuck. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Uh, yes, as Anthony said, I'm the uh, interim CIO at uh, UConn Health. Uh, UConn Health is a medium-sized academic medical center in central um, Connecticut, and uh, it's made up of uh, John Douglas Hospital. Um, we have two actually schools of medicine. One is a, a, a physician school of medicine. The other one is a school of dentistry. And then also have a large uh, clinical research uh, program as well, uh, which I, uh, I'm in charge of as well. Uh, prior to this, I was at uh, University of California, Irvine uh, Health, and been a CIO for 25 years. Started here at UConn as an interim late January, 
And uh, within about a month, everybody knows what happened with COVID. So I've uh, been focused on that probably for the last 10 months. Um, and going forward now with the surge, uh, I think we're all uh, focused on that. Very good. Christopher? Hi, Anthony. Uh, I'm Christopher Cunney. I serve as Chief of Strategy uh, for DSS, um, and specifically with the focus around our commercial line business. Uh, for over 25 years, DSS has provided health information software development and integration services uh, that's used by thousands of clinicians and administrative staff nationwide in both the public and, and private sector. Uh, we have a, a very extensive portfolio of products and solutions that are used to automate healthcare organizations. Um, DSS is, uh, for those 25 years has really been leading health innovation by creating solutions to improve revenue cycle, uh, regulatory compliance, interoperability, and above all patient care. Um, we are, DSS again is one of the nation, nation's leading IT leaders. We've been recognized for four consecutive years and since 2018 as a health informatics 100 company. Uh, my role as uh, chief of strategy is to help the, take, help the organization take a very bold leap to uh, launch a next generation cloud-based electronic health record system uh, that we affectionately call Juno EHR. Uh, we're excited to uh, introduce this product to the inpatient market and we believe that the time is ripe for uh, a new solution to come to start to disrupt the market. So I'm excited to be here and look forward to the conversation today. Very good, thank you. All right, Brett, let's start with you. Regarding the applications that physicians must use in the hospital setting, what are the main points of irritation or annoyance that contribute to burnout? Oh, gosh. Um, and it's a great question, and you can look at it kind of at a macro or micro level. On a micro level, depending on the physician, depending on their workflows, depending on their role, you know, multiple logins, that kind of uh, aggravation. We just recently changed our uh, organizational password policy to a 16 character uh, for very good reasons uh, from a security perspective, but trying to sell that to my colleagues has been uh, quite a challenge. On, on a macro level though, there's, you know, there's the interoperability pieces, meaning, you know, even though we've made leaps and bounds in exchanging information, um, there's still black holes of skilled nursing facilities, things like that, that when a hospitalist or a specialist gets a patient in the hospital trying to figure out what happened uh, prior to their arrival. And then on the other hand, there is sometimes an over-reliance on technology and it's a it's an annoyance, it's a point of irritation when traditionally we would pick up the phone and I would call Dan and say, hey, I need some help with this, this uh, diabetic child um, and just have a brief conversation. Now it all has to be entered in the computer and that's sufficient. And from the person receiving the consult, um, that is oftentimes insufficient and, and it's, it's aggravating. And then from a hospital utilization standpoint, trying to understand why these consults were done, are we over consulting on patients under consulting? Um, it can be a, a, a serious point of, of aggravation as well. So technology certainly is part of the aggravation um, and can provide some of the solutions, but I think you need to look at each uh, issue separately. Okay, very good. Dan? I think all of those things, obviously, that Brett just mentioned, the, the, you know, the phrase that you always hear used is that um, clinicians are not uh, working at the top of their license, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're not being doctors, nurses, they're being scribes and, and uh, administrators, really. And so uh, that's the sort of the general vibe that I think irritates people. 
Um, when you couple that with the stresses on clinicians nowadays, with with the need uh, that that healthcare organizations have to to get more volume and throughput um, through their organizations, um, so when the, the time that you have with each patient is so limited already, and then when you layer on some of this administration administrative work. It's not administrative, really. It's, it's part of the clinical care of the patient, but it's viewed as administrative. I think that's what really irritates um, the clinicians. What I'll also say is that I think um, uh, the, there's still a frustration at the overall user experience with these systems. They've obviously improved over time and they continue to get refined. Um, but, you know, when you look at all other aspects of life nowadays in the, in the 21st century, um, and in pretty much every other aspect, um, things are just easier. You know, when I, when I book my, my uh, vet appointment, when I order my groceries, when I do anything, um, it's just easier. I can do it all on my phone if need be. And we're not quite there yet in medicine. Clearly the, 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 the data that you've got to review, the, the full, getting the full clinical picture, it's more complex than any of those things. So I'm not saying this is a trivial exercise, but I do think there's a lot of work that still can be done and should be done. And, and that's part of the frustration as well. Chris? Yeah, you know, physicians, uh, you know, have a, a tremendous challenge to, today. I mean, navigating the expanding amount of medical information that's available to them, you know, having to deal with the onerous certification requirements and the increased burden associated with now having to leverage, you know, electronic uh, medical record systems, health record systems, uh, patient portals, you know, all the regulatory requirements around meaningful use and e-prescribing, medication reconciliation, you name it. Not to mention just the unprecedented level of scrutiny for quality metrics and patient satisfaction and trying to measure cost. You know, our organization uh, partnered with HIMSS uh, earlier this year to conduct a survey on just this topic to really try to understand where clinician uh, challenges were on leveraging technology and its impact on uh, burnout. And it was really interesting that uh, out of that survey, one out of 20 respondents uh, found that uh, the current e EHR was extremely ineffective, uh, effective. So one out of 20 felt it was effective. Mm -hmm. So the other 19 uh, so felt like their solutions were unaffected or really impacted their workflow in a, in a very negative way. And as uh, my colleague said earlier, I mean, those things that uh, are pretty clear, workflow optimization or lack thereof in many cases, ease of, ease of portability of data, the tool having the type of intelligence and knowledge to be really an advisor um, and a, um, a resource for them to make better clinical decisions and consolidating that information in a way that allows them not to have to navigate the full suite of the application to gain that knowledge. Um, and then the fact that it still requires a lot of manual intervention by the clinician uh, to input data um, take his, takes away the, their focus from focusing on the patient. And that's where their satisfaction comes from, that interaction that they have with the patient, you know, uh, taking the training that they spent years in and gaining and using that training to provide care and not having to focus their attention on um, a piece of technology that in many cases can be frustrated. And so 
you know, you see these things contributing to uh, physician burnout. And as someone mentioned before, we're, I mean, we're just really kind of in the second, third generation of these EHRs in terms of their evolution and just, uh, they've come a long way, but they still have a long way to go. And they are absolutely having a huge impact on um, uh, physician satisfaction. Very good, Chuck. Yeah, you know, from an IT perspective, you know, I actually saw a stat the other day when I was preparing for this that said that um, on average, a physician spends 50% of their day interacting with the technology and, and not the patient. So, you know, from that perspective, what happens is that now you've got somebody who's interacting. And, and again, as Dan and Brett and others said that, you know, it's important you've got to work with the technology to document the patient care. But what happens is your day is not eight hours then. It's now, it's 10, it's 12. You know, you're going home, uh, you're working at night uh, and that sort of thing. So again, that, that's going to cause sleep deprivation, things like that going forward, which is definitely going to be, uh, uh, you know, part of the physician burnout. What I hear most from physicians that I talk to is really the, the UI, the user interface is not, um, really in, intuitive enough, as I think Christopher was talking about, to be able to get to where they need to go uh, as quickly as possible. And also that it doesn't match their workflow in a lot of ways. Uh, and that's a big issue where when these systems are implemented, I don't think enough time is taken to either develop a better workflow and match the technology to it. Uh, a lot of times it's matching technology to the current workflow, which may not May, uh, may or may not be optimized. Uh, so now you're just adding technology onto a bad workflow. Uh, there's just, in, and to me, that's one of the biggest uh, areas that I hear this uh, frustration um, with physicians. It always seems to be, technology always seems to be an add-on to their day as opposed to being complementary to their day. I just wanted to comment also, uh, just uh, just to reiterate, you know, someone mentioned earlier that, you know, the other applications that we use on a day-to-day -day basis actually have made our lives easier. You know, uh, I mean, how much do we now depend on a smartphone to do almost everything in our lives? And we don't have it, you know, we're most, you know, at a loss at the how to navigate, you know, Actions, phone numbers, making appointments, et cetera. And the EHRs of today have not reduced the cognitive load. And so there's tremendous opportunities uh, moving forward to find ways to optimize those systems, to introduce other technologies like, you know, ambient voice technologies and AI to help reduce that cognitive load so that the clinician can, again, do what they do best, which is focus. Very good. All right. Um, next question, Chuck, we're going to uh, go with you, start, start off with you on this one. What types of committees or governance structures are useful in identifying and resolving technology-related causes of physician burnout? In what other ways are you working to reduce burnout? It's interesting, Anthony, that I've never been in an organization that has a, a committee focused on physician burnout. It's it's indirectly, right? but it's, it's, it's kind of, I don't know if it's the elephant in the room or it's always in the background, but the committees that, that I've worked on, the ones we have today, you know, with our physician led by CMIO leads a, a group is all about efficiencies and things like that. Uh, and again, the workflow that I talked about is developing better workflows, um, changing our, 
our EMR in, in ways to make it easier to use, um, whether it's ordering, things like that. But it's never you know, talked about that, oh, by doing all of this stuff, it's going to make the physician more efficient so that uh, it decreases burnout. That's never even been discussed. I and mean, I'd be interested to hear from others if that's actually overtly being discussed in, in meetings. It, it, to me, it's kind of behind the scenes somewhere. We know it's all there and we're trying to make the physician, the, all the caregivers actually more proficient by using the technology. But we never just come out and say, hey, you know, we want to reduce physician burnout by X, Y, and Z. Right. You don't have the physician burnout committee, you know, the, the exactly. so, so named, right. Dan? Exactly. I think, you know, the, it's, it's a challenge because the burnout is, it's multifactorial. I think there have been several studies uh, um, out now that, that show that, you know what, the computer, yeah, it is a, a component of it, but it's, it's, there's many rash, um, reasons behind what we're experiencing now. What I, what I would say is uh, two things. So um, one is just a general statement for what we've done and what I think everyone ought to do. And that's somewhat obvious, which is that you've really got to work with your clinicians. This is not something that the IT team can go think of in the back room, how do we help the docs, the nurses, the other clinicians? Um, this needs to be a collaborative process. Um, so hopefully you've got some clinical informaticians in your organization. If you don't have formally trained informaticians, that's okay. Um, as long as you're involving clinicians, you've got interested clinicians that you're working with, um, you've got to make it a partnership. Because one of the things that's, uh, I know, frustrating to the, to the clinicians is that they don't understand what some of the constraints are that we've got to work within in terms of our EHR and the other technologies. And so once you make it clear to them, you know, why we haven't done X, Y, and Z in the past, it's because the system doesn't allow for this yet. Um, then they become a little bit more sympathetic to our plight and they actually start to think in some more imaginative ways around ways that we could improve on things. Um, with the constraints that we've got currently. Not to mention it gives us more fodder for when we do go back to the EHR vendors to say, hey, uh, can you do this or that? This is uh, feedback from our clinical folks around what might, what might improve things. So that's one. Um, two, uh, and this is going to what Christopher said uh, earlier, uh, he mentioned about using voice uh, recognition. This is something that we're starting to think about heavily at Boston Children's and I intend to uh, up at, in Maine. Um, this is really potentially an inflection point in the usefulness of voice recognition that we're in. Sure, um, you know, just straightforward voice recognition has been helpful in, in reducing transcription. Um, but I really do think that with some AI now behind it, as we're starting to see from several vendors, we're at a point where you can envision a future state where the bulk, if not the entire um, uh, clinical documentation effort is taken away from the clinician. And that's huge. That's like game changing sort of stuff. So we're very curious to see what's going to happen with uh, the, the various products that are emerging now. Uh, we're piloting. We don't have any uh, real experience yet. We're still in the very earliest phases, but we're very excited to see what's going to come of this. So that's one very direct thing that we're trying that we think is going to really help to alleviate some of the problem. Very good. Brett, you know, one of the things Dan was saying about getting clinicians involved, 
And I was just thinking that that might be difficult if they're burned out. You're asking them for time and participation, but it's key to improving the situation. Is that sort of a conundrum right there? It is, it is. And the one thing that you'll find in some of the data is the more a physician is engaged, the more at risk they are for burnout, which may be counterintuitive. But if you think through it, those are the, you know, you end up going, at least in IT, I've got a certain group of cardiologists that I'll go to when I need cardiology subject matter experts or I need to talk to and in that it's tough to expand that pool but I, and I would agree with Dan I, I think um, you've got to get with the clinicians you have to partner with them so you try to get as specific as possible I think if as an organization we said this is the way we're going to address burnout at a very high level even if physicians are involved uh, it's going to be really tough because I don't know what that ER doc that works second shift needs versus the pediatrician that's working in the clinic. You know, those are their burnout needs, even from a, a technology standpoint, are going to be different. So I would say we have a physician cabinet that has been addressing burnout. It's not a specific burnout committee per se, but I'm not so sure that's a, not a bad idea. And I, I, in thinking through this question beforehand, I thought, I wonder you know how we handle things in IT in terms of projects and how important oftentimes a project manager is to pushing things through and make, keeping everybody on track. And because this is so multifaceted, I wonder if one of the structures to think about isn't having a project manager over the burnout situation. Um, and then, you know, there's just little pieces to it. We can improve efficiency over here and we can measure that and we can kind of celebrate that. But then there's more esoteric things in terms of I'm feeling stressed. How do you, you know, how do you measure that? How do you know if you're making progress? And a good project manager might be, you know, might be a solution to it. But so, you know, we're I try to get as specific and as close to the, the problem as possible. So we utilize our service lines um, for feedback there, particularly from a technology standpoint. But as a clinician, even keeping my ear to things that aren't necessarily technology driven. And then we have a, we're an epic shop. We have an epic physician steering council where some of those things that are more global will come uh, come up to us and try to address or help. I would agree with Dan huge on the voice thing. I think this. I've not been as excited for a technology as far as changing the the interaction with the patient as as voice. And we're it sounds like we're on the same path. We're just getting a small pilot of 15 providers uh, started here in the next few weeks. Very anxious to see how that goes because I can see in a couple of years that being a game changer. If if I don't have to have the the aggravation of finding the right chest X-ray in my system. Oh, but you wanted to go there and you normally go, you know, and just like, that's maddening. You become a technician, you become an administrator. I, I want the chest X-ray. That's what I want. <laughs> if I could do that by voice, confirm that, you know, I understand I'm responsible. So I'd have to push one button to confirm it, but not 20. Uh, wow. That's, that's a huge game changer. Um, integration is a big piece. When we integrated our uh, PDMP uh, with our, into our system. You talk about something that our providers just, it was a great thing to announce. You know, there's a lot of things that you wish you had the Kevlar vest on when you go to announce like the new password policy, but to tell them that our PDMP was integrated, you know, and so as integration becomes easier and easier and, and more standard, uh, I think, you know, I think there's a real uh, chance to win there. And then one thing that's not technology related, but I try to bring up in a lot of my meetings, um, you know, with the Cures Act, we just had the whole information blocking piece. We're trying to get ahead of it. We're announcing all these things. Um, kind of felt like it was going to be delayed, but you couldn't, you know, couldn't rest on your laurels there. And I'm getting in front of these clinicians, and and they're acting like, well, they've never heard of it, and they're acting like I came to them with this idea that we're going to release pathology results immediately. And don't you under? And I'm like, yes. And that's why when the legislation was introduced in 2016, you need to get involved. We can't be as a as a profession 
so head in the sand. And whether that's as a CMIO, my responsibility, you know, at an organizational level or others, um, I just encourage um, providers to get involved in, in local uh, organizational, whatever it is, and not, not even the politics, but just understanding you let other people make these decisions and now you're going to have to play with it. And a lot of times we don't have technology solutions to make it easier. And so that would be one sort of structural piece that's not part of your organization per se. I don't know if y'all have um, parts of your organization that deal with whether it's lobbying or just making sure that you're up mm. to date on what happens at a state and national level, but it's really important and affects us down the road, even if it's slow. Okay. That's a good point. Uh, try and get ahead of it with some being involved with advocacy. So you have some say perhaps in what comes out. Um, Christopher, uh, a couple of interesting points by Chuck and, and then Brad mm -hmm. and Dan about not calling this what it is. And right. it's sort of thought provoking and intriguing. Mm -hmm. um, do we need a committee on physician burnout? Do we need to start using that term? Because then it does kind of cover everything. Um, that should fall under there. So what are your thoughts there? No, absolutely. I, I think, you know, to piggyback on everyone's comments, um, you know, you have to look at it really holistically. You know, a lot of times we focus a lot of energy just on one specific part of the physician's experience, um, and that is primarily the technology. But, you know, many experts attribute, attribute about 80% of uh, physician burnout to the chaotic work environment that they're in, and really only about 20% to those personal factors. Um, but there are things like, um, you know, meditation and eating right and exercise and other stress relievers that, you know, we should be looking at incorporating into the physician's day-to-day -day process so that they can help reduce some of the, um, the, the, um, the tension and frustration associated with just operating in a very chaotic environment, especially now, I can't even imagine what life is like for a clinician in the world of COVID and the pandemic and having to manage the just the workflow and the uh, and just the, the challenges that exist every day with um, a disease that, that doesn't have a cure yet. And so we have to look at not only improving the workflow in and of itself by, you know, reducing the number of needless notifications and creating optimizing the workflow so that, you know, information is made available in a more seamless fashion and adopting technologies that hopefully help to reduce some of that cognitive load. Uh, but also on top of that, we need to think about the human factor associated with um, with stress. Uh, and that is, you know, are there more um, better mechanisms we can employ that help you um, manage stress? So again, meditation, exercise, are you eating right, getting enough sleep, you know, having uh, uh, um, support groups where you can talk about the challenges that you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis with fellow colleagues. And, and those types of things need to be a part of that whole, um, that new group that you would form around uh, clinician burnout. So it's not just purely looking at technology for technology's sake, although technology should be an enabler and help reduce the stress and so you need to find ways around that. But you also need to look at some of these other um, more holistic approaches uh, that uh, affects the human, human psyche. Yeah, Chris, I, could add, I, I think that's really important. And it's, you got to thread the needle with it. You know, it's um, as a clinician. And if, if you told a physician, you know, you need to relax and get some exercise and eat right, you know, you better duck. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. right? right. Um, it's, it's incredibly important. And they're the person that just threw the punch probably could use quite a bit of that. Right. Um, but I think you're exactly right. And if you can, 
if you can do it in a way that is constructive and and not seen while at the same time offering up some technology solutions, I think I think you're spot on. Exactly. And so the applications that can now be developed to help, you know, change behavior, you know, uh, tracking what you're eating, tracking your exercise, you know, again, creating a, a, a community of folks who are similar people, clinicians who are all coming together for the same, you know, the same uh, to address the same issue. I think there's tremendous opportunities to uh, to leverage technology, but more importantly, you know, uh, collaborate um amongst themselves to find ways to reduce stress. It's really scary. Let me add one more thing, Anthony. I'm sorry. Um, no, we, no, please. We just participated recently with the AMA's um, Mini-Z. We have done a bunch of surveys in terms of burnout. But what was curious to me was among family physicians, so we had a, an N of about 120. The most burned out physicians were had been in practice for 10 to 15 years. The most anxious <laughs> and depressed ones were the first five years. By the time you got to 11 to 15 years, you were burned out, but you weren't feeling anything or you're not feeling anything. And so that's the other piece that's a little scary is like, would you if you offered up these resources, you're the most burned out physician in this category. Are you going to recognize are you even going to recognize that versus the, the early on they were stressed They're They're trying to figure things out the first few years. At least you're feeling something. Um, and so I, I don't have a solution to that. But that was some interesting data that we uncovered just this last couple of weeks. Very interesting. All right. Very good. Very good conversation. Dan, let's start with you on this. Um, how can physician burnout be measured? Um, we love data in IT. How can specific attempts to improve the situation be measured? This is a tough one, Anthony, because, look, obviously, um, burnout means a lot of things to a lot of people, and it's very subjective. So, you know, at the end of the day, the only way that you can really sort of find out is is by asking people. And so, you know, we obviously survey the heck out of everyone. The surveys in and of themselves, you know, frustrate people and probably burn yeah. out. Oh, apologies. Um, so, okay. you know, God, I got to maybe get that. Um, no, no so, worries. Yeah. P- pivot to someone else and come back to me. Sorry. All right. Perfect. No worries. No worries. Brett, um, measuring and uh, attempting to figure out if things you're trying are being successful? I think some of the IT solutions are actually easier to measure, you know, whether it's um, time in the chart, time after hours, you know, those kinds of things. We can actually get some objective numbers. You have to be careful because we've gone after what we would determine some inefficient, you know, look at some global data, go after some of the physicians that are spending a ton of time after hours in the chart, only to find out that's their choice. They they're leaving as soon as their last patient leaves the door and they want to go coach their kid's soccer uh, team. And so they're going to do the rest of their work later. So you, tr- you want them to be as efficient as possible in that work, but that work that they're doing after hours may not be, it may be of their choosing. And that was when we were in the paper world. Um, so, but, but those kinds of things are a little bit easier to measure. I think when you start just talking about stress levels and anxiety and depressive feelings, that's a lot more subjective. And I think it, it is tough. I, I, I do as much as I can't stand another survey and we have to be careful to not add to the, the collective burnout. I think short focused four or five question uh, surveys following up on that um, at a, at a, at a regular cadence is, is key to knowing if you're moving the needle. And then again, having somebody that tracks that we, we do that right now, but I don't have somebody whose job it is until recently we've got a part-time medical director over physician or provider wellness 
to, to track that and then try to move the needle forward where we find our data. Welcome back, Dan. Dan? Yeah, sorry about that. Thanks for filling in, Brett. No. Um, and I apologies if you said this, Brett, but the other thing that I was going to say, other than doing the subjective surveys, is there are some measurements that you can do. They're, they're kind of crappy proxies, but, you know, we've all heard the phrase pajama time. Um, you know, the time after hours that, that clinicians are in the system, you know, catching up on the work that they didn't do during the day. And that's definitely, again, it's a course measure. There might be very valid reasons why they need to be in the system. You know, they're on call or some, who knows what. But, but um, it is something that, that in general does tend to track, uh, we found, with, uh, with overall feelings of, of discontent with the system. And then, you know, a, a super coarse one, but again, very real. Uh, you know, Brett, you didn't mention, uh, uh, you mentioned the, the folks just in their first few years of practice and then those 10 or 15 years. And you also have that, that most senior category of physicians who've been at it for, you know, 25, 30, 40 years. Um, retirement rate. We've seen clinicians who retire just because they're fed up with the whole thing. And again, I don't think we can blame this all on the on the computer systems. There's a variety of, of reasons, probably, but they're frustrated. And um, and you know, obviously, that's going to be a tough one to to see change quickly with uh, with you know tactics that you might use. But over time, and maybe aggregated across multiple organizations or around the country, maybe that's a measure that you could look at. You know, it's interesting Chuck? that you bring up the. Oh, go ahead, Brett. I was just gonna say the older ahead, physicians, Rich. we've had a couple where technology has ended up saving them. When we hit the big telehealth boom, like everybody else, and we're doing video visits, we've had two clinicians that were scheduled to retire in June, ended up trying this new thing, right? And said, hey, I'll do, I'll do three half days from home of this. This is, and so we actually extended their career a little bit with the technology. You know, it's interesting. I was going to actually piggyback on that. I think there's an opportunity to leverage tele, uh, um, behavior, telebehavioral health or, or um, technologies to actually um, create a mechanism for physicians to get feedback or, or to provide feedback or get consultation. You know, for example, you know, setting up maybe a quarterly uh, be kind of a wellness check, you know, with clinicians, with a telebehavioral health specialist that talk about, you know, how are you doing? You know, are you feeling burnt out? You know, try to understand where they are in that cycle and offer some um, some consultation, some direction for them as they're going through this this process and doing that in a confidential way so that they're they're not seen as someone, uh, they don't feel like it's a negative thing to have this kind of discussion with, you know, a, a, a fellow colleague or a third party resource. Uh, and they can do it in the um, privacy of their home or, you know, the office uh, where, again, it's not, you know, being seen by a broader audience. And so I think there's some huge applications for telebehavioral health technologies that help uh, get that insight from those clinicians and also coach them through the, the, the stress of uh, a very hectic working environment. I think that's a really, really interesting suggestion, Christopher, um, especially if you made it required, right? Exactly. You have to, this is something you have to do quarterly. You have to have mm -hmm. a confidential conversation with a professional, um, you know, not shared, but that's a very, very interesting idea. Um, right. Chuck, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, what I, I've worked on a couple of programs um, and actually the one in California is probably um, mirrors this conversation and it's similar to what Dan and uh, Brett were bringing up about data, looking at the data. And with the EHRs of 
they're used in California, you know, you had and uh, in Connecticut as well, but they have signal, what's called signal data. And it captures everything that the physician is doing. And you can start to mine that data and look for trends. You can see how long a particular physician spending in charting versus ordering. And, you know, within the same specialty, it should be pretty close uh, depending on what they're doing and the patients that they're seeing. You can look at all that from an analytics standpoint and get an idea of which physicians are being very efficient in what they're doing and which ones are not. And so we actually created a program, uh, West called Home for Dinner. And the goal was um, to try to get as many physicians home for dinner. And this was in the ambulatory environment in the clinics and looking at that signal data and coming up with ways where we could pair up physicians, the ones that we, the signal data was telling us that were very efficient with the ones that were not. And uh, that was super helpful. And again, it goes to, I know Brett mentioned the point, you know, some physicians like to work at home after dinner and soccer practice, things like that. And that's fine. Uh, that's their preference, but at least using the signal data, you should start bringing this stuff forward and having those conversations to see whether it's just, it is something that they're interested in or uh, you know they've got their day all figured out already. Um, but it was a big success out in California. We did it with uh, University of California, San Diego uh, together. We were on the same instance of, of, of the Epic EHR in this particular case and uh, created this physician efficiency program that was a big hit in, in getting you know docs out the door uh, before dinner. Chuck, I, I'd echo that. We've had this similar experience in our shop where we, we look at some of that data, see where folks are spending, you know, um, you know they're, they're at one end of the spectrum where the bulk of the providers are, are in the middle, and we target our training, ex, um, training um, folks uh, to, to go in and meet with them and, and ask them questions about how they're working and, and maybe pointing out things that they just didn't know that were available to them, and, and it's had really good success. Yeah, I would just piggyback onto that. Say we've got a sort of a mastery program similar to that. uh, And it's been a nice two way street learning too. Um, We've got a wonderful training and support team and they know more than I'll ever dream of, of how the functionality works, et cetera. But we've learned, I don't want to say as much, but we certainly have learned a ton from our clinicians that have just figured something out and like, Hey, that's a pretty good wet. We need to get that. We need to disseminate that workflow out. That works a lot better. Um, or let's get that back to our vendor um, to to work on that software. So, yeah, that signal data can be very important, to at least target being able to target that. What we'll do is we'll look at that and we'll see where Dan might um, be really efficient or he's not so efficient. And then we actually have a, a hour or two period of observation where we just go and our team will round uh, with that clinician and watch them interact with the computer and see if what we see on that signal data is just you know, their idiosyncrasies or if, if it's truly an area that we could help them focus on and ask them where they want focused. Sometimes they may have notes that are twice as long as their uh, colleague mm. really want help in something else. And, and then from a vendor's perspective, I, I think it's really important for uh, vendors to, you know, um, establish a relationship with the providers and those providers become really an advisory group to them having these advisory boards or advisory committees that provide this input and insight about the product um, that they're using so that they can start to develop better solutions, enhance workflows, 
address some of the challenges and issues associated with um, the tool increasing the cognitive load on the clinician. So being, and if you're going to invest in an EHR, then you're investing also in a partnership with an organization for an extended period of time. And it's in both groups' best interest to make sure that the tool is meeting the needs of the organization uh, and not creating this uh, additional stress on the, uh, the end user. So I would definitely encourage um, those of you who are with your city to become a part of their advisory groups and to provide that direct insight about the design of the product. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you know, the conundrum here, again, it's the people that you need to engage to help you make these things better are the ones that have the least amount of time to engage to help you make the things better. They just want you to make it better without them, but that's very, very difficult, if not impossible. So I think that's, you know, part of what we're all struggling with here. Um, we're going to throw out our, our little audience poll um, so our panelists can answer this as well. Most CIOs underestimate the severity of the physician burnout problem. Um, you know, and Chuck, let's let's talk a little bit about this. Um, what 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 do you think? You know, you're you're not an MD. Dan is an MD. Different perspectives there. Uh, what do you think is the sensitivity of non-MD CIOs? to the reality of this being a problem. If you've never been a physician, if you're not a physician, you might not quite get it. If so, what are your thoughts, sir? I, I, I agree. I don't think we do get it uh, because we're not in that world. I mean, we, I've been at CIO for 25 years, so I, I, am, you know, I work with a lot of physicians, so I, and I follow them around, but I'm not doing that job. But I, you know, when you look at across all of healthcare, you, know, you look at nurses, and you look at CIOs, I think there's a lot of burnout there as well. I saw a stat where a third of nursing nurses are burned out. Uh, I've talked to a lot of CIOs that are burned out. And, uh, you know, maybe for different reasons, um, but a lot of the same types of things that cause sleep deprivation and things like that. So I think a lot of CIOs, I mean, in a lot of cases, we, we're worried more about our health than the health of the, the physicians that we work with um, because we're under a lot of the same stresses, certainly not life and death types of situations that the physicians deal with, but you know, um, similar uh, types of stresses. Uh, and I think because of that, uh, we, we focus more within ourselves and within our, uh, our group and, and not so much uh, not enough empathy, I guess, with what the physicians and the clinicians are going through. Brett, why don't you give us, uh, Dan, I'll come to you one second. Brett, why don't you give us the uh, CMIO perspective? What do you think CIOs, uh, what do you think, do you think CIOs get it? You know, in my organization, yeah. And so it's hard for me to to be, you know, paint a broad stroke. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know, but I have a tight relationship with my CIO um, and she's a very empathetic person to begin with. I guess in my thinking, it's been hard to avoid the press. Maybe it's just as a clinician, I see that in a, the press, and but to avoid the concept of burnout and not know, maybe that it's, maybe you don't realize how severe it is, but that it's out there. I think the challenge as a CIO would be, I've got some control over the technology, but we just talked about, it. I got to have the clinician's input on that technology. And then that's just part of the picture. We had the regulatory burdens. We've got the cognitive overload for the EHR, but then other things and chaotic work environment that Chris mentioned. And so it's hard to say you, you can recognize it, but then can you 
take charge of that? And I don't, you know, I don't know. Dan, maybe you have an answer to that. Yeah, no, it's it's a challenge. You know, I was going to make a snarky remark uh, earlier. That's what I was jumping in for. I was just going to say, look, let's go back to paper and all of our problems will go away, right? There we go. There we go. Um, and Chuck, I, I do want to uh, chime in with what you said as well. You know, I don't like this physician burnout phrase because I really do think it's clinician burnout. Um, my, yeah. my and, and other clinical colleagues have, have chided me over the years and I'm well programmed now to to just think about clinicians overall, because I do think they're affected um, as much, in some cases, potentially more. I think nurses <laughs> interact with our EHRs more than our doctors do on a regular basis. And so they too are, are feeling it. Um, you know, I, I, I see both sides, obviously. I've got the benefit of, of having the clinical perspective as well as the all of the things that Brett, you were just pointing out. And I, I see, you know, both sides of the coin and, and it's stressful, but I, I, maybe I'm an optimist. I actually see the potential that we still have ahead of us with respect to our technologies. And, you know, when we think about things like uh, the voice uh, technologies we were talking about before and all of the other exciting stuff uh, that's likely coming down the pike, I see a lot of promise in the future. And so I do agree that we're not in a great place now, I'm still energized by by what's potentially coming. And I, I try and infuse that sort of enthusiasm to, to folks that I meet with. And um, sometimes it goes over okay. Sometimes they're like, yeah, Dan, you're, you're full of it, but I try. <laughs> I just wanted to comment also as a, actually as a former CIO, I used to be a CIO for a large health system. And then I was a consultant at the virtual guy for a number of different healthcare organizations. I, I think as someone mentioned, CIOs can sympathize with, you know, clinician burnout, um, but a lot of times they feel powerless to really impact it in a meaningful way uh, because we are to some degree slaves of the technology and slaves of our existing processes and slaves of what they now call kind of the political determinants of health, you know, the rules and regulations that we all have to now manage uh, that create more you know, workload on our clinicians. And so I think there's overall a, a general recognition and and, um, and some empathy around that, but there's but these technologies are still to some degree in their infancy. I and mean, you think about the, the, the gener where we are in the generation of, uh, of EHRs, we're probably like a second, third generation of true EHRs. We haven't been able to incorporate things like um, AI and, and other, you know, technology, ambient uh, digital voice digital technologies and others that will start to reduce some of that frustration and uh, the EHR becomes less of a tool for documentation and then more of a tool that advises and consults and helps to move the patient along in the process in a more automated way. And so I'm very optimistic. That's part of the reason why I, I came on this side of the fence from the provider side to now the vendor side to really start to help develop these technologies and bring them to market and, and really start to disrupt where the industry is today. So I'm, I'm also very optimistic. All right, very good. Let's look at the poll results. I'm just going to share them so we can move on to other things. 65% agree that CIOs underestimate the severity of the physician burnout problem. All right, I've got an audience question here I want to read. The uh, Let me put this uh, over here. The COVID-19 pandemic caused a dramatic uptick in virtual care, which likely caused stress for physicians who weren't comfortable with the technology. 
Over time, if we sustain a significant volume of virtual care, do you think this will ultimately benefit physicians by improving work-life balance and flexibility? Um, Brett, let's start with you. You mentioned a couple of physicians that decided not to retire because they were able to work virtually. But, you know, again, the conundrum here is, Yes, you can work remotely, but just like smartphones did, you're kind of always on. You know, you're always available. So what are your thoughts on that question? I think it depends on how you structure it. You know, we we applaud our IT teams, and rightfully so, that we stood up, you know, telehealth in a week for most of us and had just thousands of visits. And we just assumed that the clinicians knew how to use it and how to uh, – and they became sort of the tech team, the, the geek squad, right? The, at, at the time, they were trying to figure out the patient can't connect, I can't hear you, and figuring all that out. Well, that that part was stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, so we looked and stood up a sort of a help desk for the patients to reach out and make sure they could get connected. So, again, it's no different than if I'm going to be in the office. Um, the, the patient is roomed, and the questions that are asked by the MA or the nurse is, is taken care of and all that, and I just come in and see the patient. If you can do that – uh, you know, I think it has a huge uh, ability to be a lifestyle um, improvement if your organization allows that. I know some organizations that, yeah, they do virtual visits, but it's from the office. That's that's the only way they do it. Um, so, you know, there has to be some flexibility there or it doesn't become a, a benefit for the clinician. And the other piece that we're still trying to figure out, and I'd be curious if anybody else has gotten um, uh, a better handle on it, is how do you best schedule these things? If you're if Dan's seeing his pediatric patients, does he schedule an afternoon of just video visits? Does he do every third one as a video visit? Because he's still going to have some patients that he wants to see in person. Um, and that's that's the piece. And it's probably on an individual basis. But when you're trying to standardize some scheduling pieces um, so you can do online scheduling and that technology, it does make it a little challenging. And what's the most efficient way of, of doing that? But, I, yeah, I think it's got great potential to uh, improve lifestyle. Uh, Dan, your thoughts on uh, scheduling or the question from the audience that came in? Well, I, I ditto uh, what Brett said, that um, I do think this is a potential positive with respect to, to clinician burnout and, and the you know use of technology to do virtual visits. I, I think we're still in the infancy stages of this technology. I think, you know, in many organizations, frankly, Zoom, what we're using now is what's used. Uh, or an equivalent, right? Uh, Maybe from one of the specialized vendors. I think these tools are gonna get much better um, and more refined, and they're gonna uh, suit the workflows better, uh, both from the clinical points of view, as well as uh, for patients uh, and their lifestyles. I think the technology is gonna get better to allow us to to sort of do better job at diagnosing and and seeing things virtually. Uh, There's a company called TitoCare, um, that you may have heard of that's got these really pretty cool attached that go onto a consumer uh, phone device that let families do some, um, some um, visualization that's directed by the clinician and or by the software and allows the clinician to see things in, uh, in real time uh, with the patient being distant to them. So I, I do think that it's going to help. Um, I don't think it's going away. Um, you know, I'm still shocked, quite frankly. I think we're a little bit of an aberration at Boston Children's. We're still, um, and, and maybe with the uh, COVID uptick again, um, maybe this is uh, uh, going to be borne out around the country, but we're still seeing about 50% of our ambulatory patients um, virtually. 
Um, and I know that that's pretty high for, for other parts of the country and even in other parts of Massachusetts. I don't know why. Maybe uh, I like to uh, pretend that it's because we've rolled out just a super fantastic virtual visit <laughs> to everyone. I know that's not really the case, but um, I, so bottom line is I do think that this is going to be beneficial uh, for both patients as well as for providers moving forward. Um, it likely will help with um, quality of life kinds of issues. Um, like Brett said, you know, you could envision maybe if uh, the clinician was able to block off a significant chunk of their day that was only virtual, maybe that day is done entirely from home. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's a nice change for people who are accustomed to having to go into the office every day. So um, my, my view is that it's overall going to be a positive. Yeah. I just want to comment also. Yeah, no, I was just going to comment um, that, you know, virtual care is definitely here to stay and not primarily because the clinicians are driving it, but really because the consumers are driving it, the patients are driving it. Um, it's now so much more easier for basic ambulatory care for much of that to be done virtually now. Now I don't have to take half the day off to try to get to the my doctor's office, sit in the waiting room for an hour and then to see the doctor for 15 minutes. I can get those basic, you know, um, things taken care of in a virtual environment, uh, either whether it's a physician or a physician assistant or a nurse. I mean, we're pushing more and more the care outside of the four walls of the hospital, especially uh, that those services that don't require evasive treatment. And so I do think that virtual care will continue to evolve as these technologies like remote patient monitoring and virtual health assistance and uh, these digital clinical uh, platforms are developed that makes it easier for clinicians to deliver that care. It's easier for patients to share information. Um, and overall, it creates a, an experience that's beneficial for both, for both parties. You'll see this become the norm and not the exception uh, post-pandemic. Chuck, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one final question. And let you take us out today. Um, I've been I've been following this for a while, uh, more than a few years. I just get the the strange feeling that we we're just not getting closer. We're not, you know, we're not closing that gap between the frustration and sort of improving things. It's almost like when we think we're improving things, the goalpost moves back, um, either from more regulation or whatever. Do you feel like things are improving or is, you know, as Dan mentioned and Brett mentioned, are we still hoping for the, you know, ambient voice and all these things and the cavalry's coming and it's going to be here in a couple of years. But to me, it, it just feels like we're going to keep running, but I don't know if we're closing the gap. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that it's a mix. I, I think we are closing the gap. You know, I've been a CIO for 25 years. And if you go back to the 90s and look at the technology that we had back then with computerized physician order entry and some of the things we were trying to introduce, it was all smoke and mirrors for the most part. Very difficult to, to use those systems. Uh, I, I can remember, you know, a lot of physicians basically saying, nope, I'm not doing it. You know, I, you don't see as much of that anymore. It's, yeah, they may complain about it, but they understand how important it is with, with the respect to the patient care in the document. Back then it was like, no, I'm not doing it. So, you know, we've come a long way with the technology to get physician adoption on a lot of these systems, grumbling in a lot of ways, uh, but, you know, adoption. And I, and I agree with uh, Brett and Dan that 
you know, the, the technology is just, we've gotten to a point now where I think the pace is going to pick up with things like voice and AI. We've, we finally have got some stuff out there that is going to accelerate uh, the technology so that we don't have to wait 25 years or 20 years to go from CPOE to a fully functioning EHR, right? It, you know, we can do that in a lot smaller span. So I'm, I'm very hope, hopeful uh, that these technologies will come forward and, uh, and allow us to kind of all have an Amazon experience, you know, with, with the with the systems that we that we work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, um, I, I, you know, DSS and specifically Juno EHR, we like to believe we are the Calvary <laughs> and that we are the, <laughs> we are coming. We're bringing that type of innovation, that type of, you know, out of the box thinking uh, to the next generation EHRs. The current solutions are designed in a very monolithic way. It doesn't allow you to really leverage open architect platforms to plug in best of breed technology that really extend the reach of, uh, of care. And that's where we've, uh, and again, I'm not trying to do a sales pitch, but but that's the passion and that's the direction that we have is that we're really trying to turn this this whole industry on top of its head and introduce the Amazon experience uh, with the next product. Well, I appreciate you guys bringing us out on a high note and not my depressing, you know, we're not getting anywhere note. So <laughs> that's that's a nice way to end it. Um, regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is up on our channel. Uh, if you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our incredible panel today, Dr. Dan Nigren, Dr. Brett Oliver, Chuck Podesta, and Chris Cunningham. and I want to thank DSS for sponsoring and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.